Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California, now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Where's everybody from? How many people live here? Oh, I love, I, I love getting the local people here because, you know, a lot of times it'll be like a lot of people from England and France and Canada and whatever. And they might think it's all kind of, you know, a put on. But then you have desert people around. Like, oh, no. All the time. tell you a weird one that happened in this county. A lot of people when they come to Palm Springs they don't have any idea what county this is and that that makes sense because why would this be Riverside? And yet welcome to Riverside County. You drive up the grade to Joshua Tree, you get about halfway there through the death chute. That's why I always make them give me a room when I do these shows. I don't want to drive up that death chute at night. When you go up that death chute, you have no idea what you're going to come across. One time I was driving up there in early spring, doing a safe and sane 80 up there. It was late, nobody was around. And my high beams catch all these horns. There's a whole bunch of desert bighorn crossing the road. I don't tell that story to my wildlife biologist and park ranger friends because they would scold me. But I did not hit the bighorn. I slowed down and watch them all pass and then kind of like hop straight up the rock face opposite of the two lanes of northbound traffic. Sometimes you'll be driving up there and everybody's doing the usual thing, which is some people driving 30, some people driving 50, 60. Some Marines who came down to Palm Springs and got a motorcycle or a Pontiac sports car, they're doing about a hundred. But then it'll look like kind of like a spaceship crashing, you know, coming down onto the road. And then you realize it's a convoy of Marine vehicles headed up to 29 Palms. And I don't know if this is part of the training or what, but it seems like about every third vehicle breaks down driving up that grade and so they're pulled over here and there and you got guys out on the road waving flashlights and things anyway this is Riverside County once you cross up there you're in San Bernardino County San Bernardino County is so big it does not end until Arizona and Nevada And yet the county has only apparently two or three employees. <laughs> it's 
why we don't have any restaurants in Joshua Tree. Always like, oh, you could do with another ten restaurants and bars and beer halls and everything. You're like, yeah, we know. Can't do it. Can't get the permits. No sewer system. No system. No municipal government. But we do have three million visitors a year who come through that west entrance to Joshua Tree National Park. Thank you for your service. Be nice to get a little more of your tax money when you're up there. But they don't really give it to us. That's why everybody's always opening up Airbnbs. You run into an old friend. How you doing? Doing all right. It's a little rough right now. I'm living in my truck. You have that nice house over there. Yeah, it's an Airbnb. So Riverside County goes all the way, curiously, to the Colorado River, even though it's not named for that. It's named for the town of Riverside on the other side of the mountains. And out there on the Colorado River, that's some real harsh, hot, dry desert. You know, it's green for about 10 feet by the river. But otherwise, it's, it's a rough environment. So you've all heard of Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp got around. The only home that Wyatt Earp ever owned he lived all over the West. He was in Tombstone. He was in Tonopah. He went to every gold mining, silver mining town. Good card player. Not that good a sheriff, but somebody was always in need of a sheriff somewhere. Well, he married a uh, an entertainer. A prostitute and she was a real smart interesting character and she kind of stabilized him and so they owned their first home together out in a little place called uh, Vidal or Vidal V-A-I-D-A-L nobody really lives there so the old pronunciation is kind of a guessing game and he had a couple of mining claims out there. Never got too much, but he got a little bit here and there. And they had this house in Vidal, Vidal. And then as happened with alarming regularity in the old days of all wooden towns and not much in the way of any kind of fire prevention system. The whole town burnt down, what little there was of it, except for Wyatt Earp's house. And so he had it moved down the road to Vidal Junction, where it still is. So this is a place that few people visit. 
If you happen to be driving the two lane from Yuma to Needles, non up to Nevada, Laughlin, etc., along the river, you'll go through it. There's a gas station there. The last time I was there, the gas station was open. It was a chain gas station. But when the interstate started opening up in the 70s in the southwest, all of a sudden a lot of these little towns just dried up. Like Amboy. Anybody been to Amboy? So Amboy, until I believe 1972, was thriving 24 hours a day, three shifts at the garage, at the motel, at the cafe, and the diner. And then the interstate opened up just about 14 miles north of Amboy. And just overnight, it was over. So what you see there, what's there today, they got the neon up, you know, the old Roy's neon sign is beautiful. And some people on Instagram give me grief. I can't believe they're going to change that. It's a sign. It's pretty. No one intended it to be dark. So what's up there of Amboy, that's what's left after the original owner, the original owner, the owner at the time. The owner now is the guy who owns the Juan Pollo, uh, El Pollo Loco knockoffs in the Inland Empire. He bought it. The whole town was listed on eBay for $425,000 in 2006. So he bought it, and he was going to like put a Juan Pollo, chicken diner, and whatever. And the whole place is basically a super fun site. There was never any sewer or gas tank, uh, modern gas tank insulation to keep it away from the groundwater and everything. So they don't even have running water. Anyway, Amboy is better remembered than uh, the Dow, the Dow, California. But in 1969, a weird thing happened out there. Like a lot of weird things, it started at uh, USC. So what happened was, anybody ever hear of uh, Aleister Crowley, the great English magician, wizard, spy, apparently a spy, uh, minor nobility, I believe. So Crowley kind of led the late 19th and early 20th century uh, occult revivals in England and the United States and in Western Europe as well. He was active with a lodge in, in Paris. And there were little offshoots everywhere. And these were little secret societies and people starting with the uh, the, the romantics and the Victorian era. 
had embraced this stuff because they saw the industrial revolution and everything getting, I guess, more organized, a little less interesting. Especially in England, the church had kind of shed a lot of its mysticism and ritual and all the beautiful stuff that uh, artistic people tend to enjoy, romantic people. And so they'd start these little lodges to do magic, and they come up with all kinds of stuff. Like, oh, it you know, comes from the pharaohs, and through so-and-so, an alchemist in Prague and 1510. So these things spread around a bit, and they found a very eager audience in Southern California. Southern California is an absolute nuthouse for all this kinds of stuff in the 20th century. As people moved out here from their established communities, their friends, their churches, their social clubs, their identities, and they came out here because, because the railroads used to send the empty trains back to Chicago and the East Coast and the Midwest filled with oranges and pamphlets. And the oranges were from Pasadena and Riverside later. And the pamphlets were what would become Sunset Magazine. And it was like, come on out. This is the promised land. And you're out there, you're going to break in your back shoveling snow for nine months of the year in Des Moines or whatever. Come on out. So they would, and they'd move into these weird little developments that are you know, now all like $800,000 houses, even though they're still 300 square feet. And like Hawaiian gardens and whatever. And they'd come out there and be like, ah, the sun, yeah, palm tree. And they had nothing to do. And they had nothing to believe in. And the dread set in. And so they all started looking for something. So science fiction started booming out of L.A. And UFO groups and metaphysical groups started booming out of San Diego. And the Crowleyan ritual magic groups started attracting the innovators and the kind of creative, kind of nutty people. And so one of these, one of these groups, an offshoot of the OTO, Crowley's group that he kind of made as an offshoot of another older group. They were a bunch of kind of bohemians and kind of proto-hipsters. One of these guys was uh, Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons, the founder of Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Now, he himself had limited higher education, but he's a very smart, very interesting character, interested in everything. And he developed the basics of, of rocket propulsion. And he did it the old-fashioned way, you know, like, a, like an alchemist in a garage, mixing stuff up, blowing things up. He eventually died probably by blowing himself up in his garage. 
Although there are theories, you know, they got they got him. The man got him. He had uh, he met up with a a guy who just got out of the Navy uh, named L. Ron Hubbard, and he uh, now uh, Hubbard was a science fiction writer. There are all these science fiction magazines, you know, Fate and Amazing Stories. And so all these science fiction writers would gather at, uh, at, at this crazy cafeteria, Clifton's, in downtown Los Angeles. It was like Disneyland. You been there? It's crazy. They tried to, they made a go of it. They reopened it. In fact, the guy who organized the deal so that they could reopen 10 years ago, 11 years ago, uh, Ed Rosenthal, commercial real estate broker, he made that deal. Clifton's had sat there in downtown LA for years, and people being, oh, we got to do something, you know, with this. It's magnificent. It's near Grand Central Market, where the LA Times used to be, uh, Garment District, all that stuff. And uh, he made a deal to get Clifton's reopened, this place that had been this kind of Disneyland cafeteria where all the little groups would meet, you know, the bridge groups, the metaphysical groups, because nobody had anywhere to meet. So they go meet at this weird place that looked like uh, the, the Jungle Cruise ride at Disneyland. Fake trees, you know, monkey sounds and everything. And the owners, well, this comes from Charles Bukowski, he said the owners were such good people that during the Depression, they would not turn anybody away. Anybody who came in to eat there would be fed. And if they had, you know, five cents, that's, that's what the meal would cost. So this guy, Ed Rosenthal, he makes this deal in 2009, drives up to his favorite place, Joshua Tree, to have a day hike in celebration. Now, people used to, like, go get some martinis and hookers or whatever. But, you know, it's a different time. It's a healthier time. So he went up to Black Rock Canyon, which is right behind where he used to live there in Yucca Valley, for a day hike. Guy got lost. He was gone for seven days, eight days. Helicopters, search and rescue all the time. He'd been there many times, but he'd come in August. It was monsoon season. He got distracted. He lost his sense of direction. It was much more humid than it usually is. The guy ended up wandering almost all the way down to Desert Hot Springs. That's how turned around he got. He had written out his will on his hat on his son hat. And he was, you know, dear wife and son, you know, this goes here, whatever, goodbye. And a helicopter happened to go over and he had uh, a, a little mirror that was part of some little like thing he had in his pocket, some little reflective thing. And he managed to make a signal and they got him and, and he survived. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. So. L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons start up the Pasadena Lodge of uh, Ordo Temp Templi Orientis, the Order of the Eastern Temple. And they had a crazy scene there. They had all kinds of writers and bohemians and painters and 
early tech industry and aerospace industry people all hanging out and they do seances and they do like rituals to demons and stuff and they'd have snacks and this big old mansion on South Orange in Pasadena everybody thought Jack Parsons owned it but apparently he was just leasing it well uh Hubbard took off with with Jack's girlfriend and a yacht, apparently. And it was some kind of scheme, like to take a yacht to Florida and sell it to get money for the lodge. But meanwhile, they went up into the Mojave Desert up by by Rocket Rocket Test Road, Rocket Site Road, up uh, by Edwards, by Boron in the western Mojave. They did some weird ritual they called the Babylon Working. And this was 1947. They apparently, to hear them tell it, opened up some kind of interdimensional portal to some kind of hell dimension, which came in. And that's where we are now. We still have a bar. And plumbing, Uber Eats. And after Hubbard disappeared, Parsons ended up doing a lot of explosive uh, explosive effects work for, for movies in, in Los Angeles through his, his own little business, because he got pushed out of the business he started, which was Aerojet, which became uh, JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which became Caltech, which runs all of our robots on all the various planets. Did you know Mars is the only planet we're aware of that's completely occupied by robots? <laughs> There's something like 20, 22 robots, most still functioning a little bit. So the lodge kind of petered out. And that was kind of the end of it for a while. But there were kind of a, a couple of minor kind of hangers on. And in the early 1960s, these people started building up their offshoot lodge. By this time, Crowley is dead. Hubbard is alive, but in England doing Scientology, which was very hip at the time, considered very much like a kind of underground hipster beat thing. William Burroughs was a Scientologist, Leonard Cohen, the Beatles were interested. You know. This was like the early days when it's like all kinds of new religious stuff happening everywhere. It sounded cool too, you know, technology and religion, just like in the science fiction books. So the old ritual magic scene had really kind of died down. But these people started something they called the Solar Lodge. And they started it in a house in L.A. near the campus of USC. And then they opened up a, a bookstore called the Eye of Horus. You know, like the Egyptian eye thing. And they sold uh, New Age books, occult books, uh, tarot decks. You know, stuff that was interesting to to the counterculture that was emerging in the mid-1960s. 
Well, before too long, they'd assembled a group of kind of oddballs. And unlike the earlier ritual magic groups, which were very much kind of a middle class kind of thing, the people in Solar Lodge were sort of drifters. They didn't have any assets. They didn't have a day job at the university or a military pension or whatever. And these sorts of people are more easily exploited in a cult environment. So what had been kind of an intellectual parlor game became a cult where people were supposed to turn over their lives. What became a cliche by the 1970s, the you know, weird cults where people would give up everything. They got a lot of these people to give up everything and move out to 30-odd acres that they purchased for just about nothing in Vidal, a place previously only known as being the location of the one permanent home that Wyatt Earp, the famous cowboy and Old West figure, had ever owned. Night has fallen on the desert, and somehow it was five months ago when I last got to tell some campfire stories. Got to visit with you all around the campfire down at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs. Mostly being a desert hermit and all, this shutdown hasn't had too much day-to-day impact on my operations, as they say over at the bombing range. Money's always tight, and there were hardly any restaurants open to start with up here in the high desert. But it's just such nice campfire weather right now. I guess I just miss seeing your smiling and or terrified faces lit up by the firelight and the whiskey. What a goofy world. Well, at least you know what you've always suspected. Nobody else knows what's going on either. This is episode... 91, by the way, which means our 100th episode is coming right up in mid-July if we keep our nose to the grindstone and work hard every day. We want to do something, some sort of event in mid-July, late July, got to figure out when and where, safe and sane, etc. What a drag everything has become. It's all right, though. It's going to be better on the other side. We'll make it that way. Lord knows nobody's going to do it for us. For our radio listeners, we'll be back after these important announcements from the U.S. Space Force and the Board of Social Regulation and your local secret guild of Trovers. And if you're listening to the podcast, would you sit back and enjoy the musical sounds of our own red, blue, black, silver on Desert Oracle Radio. 
transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Welcome back to Desert Oracle Radio. I'm your host, Ken Lane. Let's get right back to our campfire story about the Solar Lodge out in the hot-as-hell desert crossroads of Vidal, California. They bought the gas station, they bought the motel, they bought the garage. And they operated these things with... Well, if you've ever been up to the high desert and you have a car problem or something and you pull into some garage and you think, I don't even think these people are mechanics. That was the scene. (laughs) And they had them all living out in this kind of shanty town that they built out of junk and plywood, tarps. And so people were out there and they had kids, they had little kids. And they'd separate, very common in cults, they'd separate the children from the parents. And they go, the children are going to be over, you know, with this sketchy person who most certainly is not a teacher or anything, you know. And (laughs) you all are going to go work in the diner and you're going to change sheets in the motel and you're going to do this. Now, what they had that was of most value to them as they had a bunch of Aleister Crowley's personal papers, diaries, spell books, things like that. These were things that they had accumulated because they had this bookstore that dealt in kind of the mass market stuff for the regular people, and like a lot of bookstores, used bookstores, then they've got the expensive stuff for the collectors. So, like Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin is a famous collector of, uh, of Aleister Crowley books. Now, he's born and raised in London, uh, suburbs of London, lives in London to this day. He didn't find those books there. He found them when his band would be based in Los Angeles and West Hollywood for months at a time. And he'd go scouring the New Age and uh, occult bookstores and buy all this stuff. So L.A. was known for having all this stuff. They had a trove of this stuff in a shed, in kind of a barn shed kind of thing. A little boy who had been separated from his parents and kind of kept with these other kids and mostly just left to roam around the desert and the heat had gone in there in one way or another nobody knows exactly what happened and he was the only one there Uh, a fire maybe he was playing with matches I don't know a fire started and a lot of these Crowley papers burnt up and so the cult leaders were livid and this is 1969. This is not you know, Victorian era. This is not children working in uh, Liverpool sweatshops or you know, whatever. They knew it was wrong, what they were doing. They took this little boy and 
they tried to get him to admit that he was part of a plot, that he was trying to destroy this important stuff to ruin the solar lodge. And he's just a little kid. I think he was seven, six. So they had a crate, a wooden crate that was kind of like probably one by fours inside with cross beams. And they had taken the plywood off the sides of it. So it was a cage. And they put this little boy in this cage. How long is still in debate? There were various stories, but it's absolutely horrific. They put this kid in there and somebody came to their senses and alerted Riverside sheriffs. Because Vidal is right on the boundary of San Bernardino County, it's on the Riverside side, the San Bernardino and Riverside. Sheriff's deputies from both agencies went in. They found the kid there. There were three bowls. One for water, one for whatever slop food they threw in there, and one for his toilet. It was about 110 degrees, there were flies everywhere, and he was just sitting in there looking stunned, as you might imagine. They got him out, they started arresting people. The parents were both there, although apparently not specifically involved in this uh, child abuse is torture. So a bunch of them were arrested. They were booked. Some got out on bail because there wasn't anything really specific that they were accused of other than whatever they could throw at them. Zoning violations, disturbing the peace, etc. And there was a trial and the trial was in Indio, at the courthouse. And the newspapers dubbed the case the boy in the box. So there were headlines in 1969 across the country, the boy in the box. It was a huge outrage. Now, I've told this story here and there. And sometimes people will say, well, I was alive then, I was an adult, I remember what was going on, da da da, I never heard of it. Well, you need to look it up. Uh, it, it happened, but here's the thing. During the trial, the Manson family was arrested at Barker Ranch on the other side of the Panamints in Death Valley. Now, when they were arrested, nobody knew who the Manson family was. This was October of 1969. The murders had happened in Los Angeles, but there were no suspects. Remember, the Manson family tried to make it look like the Black Panthers did it because they wanted to start a race war that would end in nuclear war. Well, the Manson family was going to hide underground under Death Valley in Secret Springs where there were 12 trees that had 12 fruits that would feed them forever. So the little boy took the stand, which is insane to think about. 
And apparently, if it was on television, there is no evidence left today. Most TV news wasn't recorded then. the tapes would be erased or the film would be thrown out. It's kind of like the internet now. Remember when we got the internet? It's like, oh, we're going to have everything, all data, all information forever. And it's like three years later, all my pictures are gone because my space closed. They were bad pictures on my space. So what ended up eclipsing the actual story of the boy in the box was the fact that Charles Manson had passed through the Solar Lodge, both in L.A. and supposedly, although no hard evidence because people came and went out of there, they were drifters out of the Vidal camp, cult camp. In the end, almost nobody even went to jail. The people scattered, charges were dropped, sloppy police work, lack of evidence, testimony that was questionable. But the only good thing I've ever gotten out of that story is we don't all know that kid's name. So hopefully he went on and had a regular life. He would be late 50s at this point with decades of life ahead of him and hopefully decades that will not be... Uh, hopefully nobody will make a movie about it. So I'm saying this to the wrong crowd. It's the Palm Springs Film Festival. So if you go over to the Amigo room later and you're talking to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, I've got a short in the Palm Springs Film Festival, don't say I've got an idea from him. Let the kid go in peace. I don't even say his name, you'll notice. So it's weird sometimes to think about the California desert and how there are things that happened in this desert during that time that are eclipsed simply because there were much crazier, much more insane, much more violent and psychopathic things happening in the California desert at the same time. But because of that, the 70s and into the 80s, became a time that would eventually be known as the Satanic Panic. By the mid-late 1980s, the local TV news would be all over it if uh, a 12-year-old drew a pentagram in the dirt at middle school because it was on the back of his Rush album or whatever. <laughs> I don't want to say anything against Rush. I don't even think they did that. If they did, I'm sure it was literary. 
Well, I've already gone over, but I'll tell you a little happy story before we go. The place that used to be known as the Desert Wasteland, where the Manson family was captured, they weren't captured for murder. They were captured for stealing some dune buggies and vandalizing National Park sign. Thank God they were dumb. Because they got away with murder, multiple murders, and they might have never been captured because nobody knew who they were, what they looked like. Nobody was going to go get the Beach Boys and say, who do you think killed these people? The Beach Boys were like the only people who knew. Dennis Wilson in particular. That was all seen as wasteland, as a place that had no hope, that had no use, that had no use for mankind. And in the decades since, thanks to the people who live here and love the deserts and have been camping and hiking and loving it and not finding it to be a wasteland or a hellhole at all, were able to fill in those early national monuments, Death Valley National Monument and Joshua Tree National Monument. In 1994, Joshua Tree National Monument, Death Valley National Monument were elevated to national park status. Mojave National Preserve, which is a national park, but because of Redlands Congressman and uh, Jerry Lewis, not the clown, uh, didn't want there to be a new national park in California, so he did something in Congress so that you could still hunt deer there for 12 days a year. And so that's why it's called Mojave National Preserve. It is my favorite national park in California. It is gorgeous. Rarely visited. No cell service in most of it, so you won't be out there on the trail and have like a line of people changing clothes for their Instagram accounts to take pictures, you know? It's nice out there. 1994, those places came into being. Death Valley National Park, Joshua Tree National Park, Mojave National Preserve. And then, at the beginning of last year, kind of to the shock of everybody in the conservation desert protection community, another big desert protection bill kind of slipped by, got through the White House somehow, and got signed. And that expanded Joshua Tree, expanded Mojave National Preserve by a little, expanded Death Valley National Park by a lot, made hundreds of thousands of acres more wilderness, protected mountains, forests, desert valleys, mostly dry waterways, occasionally have a little water now and then. And so now, if you leave Palm Springs, go past the windmills and go up that hill there, once you get past the little towns up by Joshua Tree. That is desert wilderness all the way to Las Vegas and all the way up to uh, Inyo and Mono County up in far eastern California in the White Mountains. It's the second largest protected desert on earth after the uh, slightly bigger 
Desert Preserve on the southwestern edge of the African continent. If you've ever seen all those beautiful pictures of those old buildings filled with sand on the coast and everything, that's the only one bigger. So enjoy it, use it. You're going to see crazy animals, especially if you get out of your car and walk a few feet. You don't have to walk far. You're going to see a denser Joshua Tree forest in Mojave National Preserve than anywhere in Joshua Tree National Park. I mean, they're crazy. You know, they're like three, four stories tall. What happened? Joshua Trees up in Joshua Tree National Park look like poles with a couple of kind of yucca things at the top. The desert biologist, Edmund Yeager, who used to live in this canyon right here with a bunch of bohemians and painters and free love people in the 20s, 100 years ago, he is the one who established that there are actually uh, uh, two Joshua trees. There's the one we're used to out here from Victorville and Antelope Valley to Yucca Valley, Landers, all of that. And then there's the one in the preserve and on the Arizona Strip, the subspecies, which now has his name in Latin at the end of it. They're different. They look different. They've been separated across the low Mojave for a long time. Now there's lots of rare and unique birds and there's people with five or six pairs of binoculars hanging off their neck and they can barely close the Subaru doors, it's crazy. And they do the bird counts and everything and sometimes they can kind of make you feel like kind of a poser just because you're walking around looking at a bird, you know. Hey, a roadrunner. Don't let them, roadrunners are great. Roadrunners are strange and wonderful birds, and if you have one on your property, you have, well, I think it was Audubon who called them nature's comedians. They're very charming and funny, uh, except for when the baby ground squirrels are born. Hide the kids, because they're little T-Rexes, and they ain't kind to the baby ground squirrels. You see eight or nine one day, and then there's two or three, and then there's one, and luckily they breed in high numbers. The main bird you're gonna see out in the desert is the common raven. And once or twice I've heard some kind of bird nut complain about ravens, and I just won't have it. Ravens are the most intelligent of the corvids. The corvids are the most intelligent of all birds. And that means they're smarter than about 70, 73% of people. <laughs> they can make tools. You can amuse yourself on YouTube for hours watching videos of ravens making tools. And they don't just make tools, they make toys. One of my favorites is a snowy roof somewhere and a raven got a, a lid off a tub of yogurt and took it up to the top of the roof and then stands on it and slides down the roof and then hops off and the yogurt lid falls down. It goes down and gets it 
it did it enough times that the person who lived in this house was able to go inside, get a video camera, come outside, stand at the right distance, and get it doing it another four or five times. They're, they're delightful. And there are Corbett's in Japan, lots of videos that have gone around for years where they come up on top of a tunnel and they drop these hard nuts so that the trucks will drive over and crack the nut. And then once the truck is gone, they go down and chomp, chomp. The same raven that we have in the desert here is the same species of raven that is in the, the Edda, the old Norse mythology, where we get uh, Thor from, and all of that. You know, Thursday, that's for Thor. You should always say Thor's day. Wednesday is for Woden or Odin. Odin was the chief paternal god in Norse mythology. Now, Odin was a god, but he was a realistic god. He could not be everywhere all the time. Kind of like the god in the Old Testament, you know, in Genesis and the Garden of Eden. It's like Adam and Eve do all kinds of stuff because God wasn't there. And then, you know, he'd come, oh, he's coming. And apparently he'd walk in. They don't say what he looks like or anything, but Odin was like that as well. But Odin had something that the God of Genesis did not have. Odin had two ravens who were his familiars. And they were named Thought and Memory. And they would go out into the great cold north and bring him information. What was going on? What are these people doing? What are these? You need to do something over here to help these people? These people flooded out, etc. Thought and memory. A couple months ago, I was living in 29 Palms for a month between houses, thanks to the world's longest escrow. And so I'd never lived in 29 Palms. I love 29 Palms. I thought, all right, I'll, I'll sublet this little house for a month here and wait it out. So during that time, every day I hiked in the 29 Palms entrance area of the National Park at the end of uh, Utah Trail there. And on my last day there, it's the tail end of the California Riding and Hiking Trail, which goes, I believe, 38 miles to Black Rock Canyon in Yucca Valley. It's a beautiful trail. I've never done the whole thing. I've done a lot of it in segments. And so I was just doing that, walk a mile and a half, walk back. Get out of the house. Quit looking at the computer. Quit answering emails. And so I'm coming back, and there's a raven in a dry wash... And because of the way it's acting, I think it's injured, like its wing is hurt or something. I mean, I'm not a vet. I don't know what the hell I would do about it. But I was concerned, and I kind of walked over to look. And it led me a little bit, and it was kind of making these weird calls. And I got close to it, and finally it picked up and flew. And I saw, great, it flies. It's just being a weird raven, as they often are. 
I watched it arc into the sky and go over, and I see down the hill, that's where I'm parked. And it lands on the roof of my car. And I thought, well, it's time to go. The raven would like me to leave. So I left and I haven't been back yet. Thanks for coming, everybody. Happy New Year. Good night. and across the great Mojave wilderness this is Desert Oracle Radio we broadcast from Joshua Tree on Friday nights locally from our home station KCDZ 107.7 FM you can get the Desert Oracle podcast through all the usual outlets Until the end progress apocalypse or the EMF satellite attack or whatever when we will be entirely on terrestrial radio free and pure the way it was meant to be We've got a patreon set up as well I do appreciate those of you who contribute to the operation out here Become a patron of desert oracle for a couple of bucks a month and we'll keep broadcasting We'll keep up the work we were put here to do. Just go to patreon.com forward slash desert oracle. Thanks for listening and thanks to Red, Blue, Black, Silver for the custom soundscapes you heard tonight. That piece at the bottom of the hour is called Mojave Suite. Check out all his music on Bandcamp. It's Red, Blue, Black, Silver. Be mindful, be thoughtful, and don't feel bad about laughing now and then. My God, you need it. We need it. Don't give in to the fear. Don't let the bullies bully you. Know your neighborhood and know your neighbors. We're all going to need each other a lot more in the days and nights ahead. There's no Calvary coming. Be your own Calvary. You and your people. Be all you can be. As for us, we will be back next week. And we finally got a bonus episode up for the Patreon supporters. Thank you for listening, and good night from the Voice of the Desert.